To season three of the Fixing Healthcare podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I am also the host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best selling book, Mistreated Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the new season of our monthly podcast aimed at addressing the failures of the American healthcare system and finding solutions to make it once again the best in the world. In this, our third season, we turn to the world of politics and the role of government in healthcare. As always, we invite you, the listeners, to share your thoughts on this topic. Please take the new Fixing Healthcare survey available on my website, robertperlmd.com. We'll be reading and discussing the best listener suggestions throughout this season. Robbie, as you know, our listeners love the podcast interview with Tyler Schultz, the whistleblower from the Theranos debacle. Uh, They're fascinated by this season's theme of the role that government can and should play. Listeners are looking to the government to drive down drug prices, make hospital costs more transparent and affordable, and eliminate surprise billing. And they also have a deep desire to restore the traditional mission and purpose of medicine. Today's episode will focus on many of those opportunities. Our guest will be Stephen Bergman, whose literary pseudonym is Samuel Shem. He is the author of multiple works of fiction, including two books on these themes. In 1978, Shem published a satirical novel titled The House of God, based on his internship year at the Beth Israel Hospital, a Harvard Medical School-associated teaching facility in Boston. The novel has sold over 2 million copies. His most recent book, Man's Fourth Best Hospital, is set in a nearby institution, the Massachusetts General Hospital, 40 years later with the same cast of offbeat and unforgettable characters. Shem currently teaches at the NYU Medical School. Robbie, I know you've read both books. Uh, Any thoughts before we ask the author about some of the more specific areas? Absolutely. First, for listeners who have not read House of God, it is a classic in the medical field. I recommend it to people who desire to understand what it takes to become a physician and the ways humanism is slowly extracted from doctors during their seven to 10 years of education and training. In this book, the author graphically portrays a medical mindset that so highly values intervention that it produces as much harm as good and an approach to patient care that rarely misses an opportunity to generate revenue for doctors and hospitals. His just-published sequel looks at a more recent cause of despair, the electronic health record, and suggests solutions to salvage the interpersonal side of medical practice for the benefit of both physicians and patients. Let's begin. Welcome, Shem. We're thrilled to have you on the show. Let me begin by asking you a couple of things I've wondered since I first read your book, House of God, many years ago. How did you pick your nom de plume? It's hard to pick a name. You want to pick one that no one has. Uh, and I came across, I thought, I don't know why I thought of it, but I thought of Shem because Shem in Hebrew means name. So I got a name that's the name. Excellent. 
And also in Finnegan's Wake, the two uh, sons of Finnegan are Shem and Sean, and Shem is the writer, Shem the penman, he calls him. So that seemed nice, too. I was heavy into Irish writers at that time. 1978, you wrote the book House of God, which I think may have been the funniest book in medicine that I've ever read, but also I think it's one of the saddest, and I've recommended it to thousands of medical students and others interested in the healthcare profession. You predicted so many things about today. Uh-huh. Burnout, suicide, overtreatment, motivation to get money ahead of patient care. For your perspective, 40 years later, now that you've written your sequel that we'll talk about in a few minutes, what do you see that's different about medical practice? And what do you think is the same? Well, um, at best, the same is the same. Because, and, and as I, you know, I'm a writer of resistance to un- injustice. And the injustice was in both in the house of God and in, this, in man's fourth best hospital is the doctor-patient relationship. The injustice of, of being forced in a system where you can't really do what you want to do. And as you know, what we docs came into it for, which was to help people, right? To help to make contact and guide them through their suffering and be there at the worst times in their life to help them through. And that hasn't changed as what is the best. But what has happened was something that is a problem for both doctors and patients and nurses, etc. The biggest difference uh, that has caused all the trouble, as far as I can tell, are the computer screens that are linked, that link data to payment, that link code to cash. That is that it's, you know, as you know, but the public doesn't know, it's mainly in a lot of ways, uh, a billing machine or a cash register that we doctors are at these machines from 60 to 70, 80% a day because we are tasked with the job of fighting for the highest payment of our diagnosis, right? That we are putting down. And on the other side of the war on the screens, the insurance insurance drones are trying to pay the least for each of the codes we click. And like all wars, it was about it's about money. So that's what got me going uh, to write Man's Fourth Hospital. What got me going for for the House of God was the abuse of interns and residents. In both of your books, there's a list of absurd-sounding, immutable laws or rules that consistently prove true. Each of the lists is created by an unforgettable character named the Fat Man. Can you put him in context for the listeners? Well, the House of God is a story, you know, sort of one step off real. Uh, of my internship, where it's about, uh, go, it's, it's really going through the internship with uh, five other interns as major characters, and uh, this character called the Fat Man, who is their resident, that teaches them, who's the hero of the book, book of both books, and who is this marvelous, kind of huge, in every way, wise, foolish, in a way, expert uh, teacher and doctor. And the book is uh, about how these sort of innocent 
interns, including the narrator, Roy Bash, enter this system with all high hopes of being humane doctors and treating patients well. And alas, this big hierarchical system does not allow them to do what they think is in the best interest of their patients. Jeremy, an important area of opportunity for the government is relative to resident education. What listeners may not know is that the funding for this training comes directly from the federal government. Today, the government delegates oversight to hospitals and specialty societies, but it could play a more direct role. Shem powerfully captures the problem residents face through the fat man's law number eight. They can always hurt you more. This rule describes in one sentence the fundamental power dynamic impacting medical students and residents. They are aware that their future is dependent on those above them, and they are forced to confront the reality that power often is abused. A recent study published in the New England Journal of Medicine titled Discrimination, Abuse, Harassment, and Burnout in Surgical Residency Training showed that 32% of residents felt they had been discriminated against because of their gender including 20% of women who reported overt sexual harassment. 39% of residents acknowledged experiencing weekly burnout symptoms, and 4.5% had suicidal thoughts in the previous year. Issues of discrimination and harassment are areas of governmental oversight and responsibility. Let's hear Shem's thoughts on a few of these subjects. When the book came out, I believe that you were severely castigated by the medical establishment, including many doctors, as you point out in the book. And I don't think that would be the case today, but I suspect that people who read the book might be, I'll call it offended, by some of the portrayal of the women that you do over achieving senior residents like Joe and some of the sexual dalliances that are there. How do you view this societal evolution in the context of medicine? Well, yeah, this was, I really got a lot of shit from the older doctors because this didn't, didn't uh, resonate with them, the, you know, uh, the house of God. My guys and, and women too, at, even though women were not portrayed all that well in the house of God, uh, they loved it. And, they la- and it was all word of mouth. There were no ads, there were no reviews, there was no interviews by me. It just zoomed out of the stores because of word of mouth, which is any way that, that any thing that sells books is word of mouth for any length of, of time. They were really nasty to me at Harvard. The one thing that came out of Beth Israel Hospital, which was what it was about, is they passed around a rumor that I didn't take good care of patients. And that really bothered me because I did take good care of patients. Not that, you know, that, that, that wasn't in question. I may not have been the best intern, but I was a good one. Then there were criticisms, valid criticisms by nurses, especially who are mostly women, that, oh, the way you portray women in this book, this is really not very good, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I pled that that's the way it was. That's the only defense I had. I write, I write not only real, I write one step off real, my editor said, which is, brings out the humor. But I, real, I write real from real. What I've done consciously in Man's Fourth Best Hospital, because it's such a different era, that you will be pleased to hear and everybody will be pleased to hear that uh, when the fat man founds this clinic leaning up against man's fourth best hospital, this public clinic 
by the end of the novel, we have achieved parity with women. There are as many women as men, which, which really makes me feel good because that's the way it is now. Robbie, in The House of God, the characters often talk about the Gomers. What do they mean by this term, and what is its relevance to the government? Reading a parody decades after it is written can prove uncomfortable and emotionally difficult. In rereading The House of God, the use of Gomer is a clear example due to the derogatory nature of the word. At the same time in the book itself, it is used more often as a term of endearment than derision. The word is an abbreviation of the phrase, get out of my emergency room. The authors use Gomer to transmit the fat man's disdain, not for the patients, but for the individuals who have sent them to the hospital with minor problems, hoping they will be admitted, and therefore they won't have to provide the care themselves. In the House of God, the labels apply to frail and elderly individuals living in nursing homes whose families have long since abandoned and forgotten them. Shem brings a humanism to their plight. To quote the fat man, but Gomers are not just dear old people. Gomers are human beings who have lost what goes into being human beings. They want to die and we won't let them. He offers rule number two. Gomers go to ground. By that he means people in this situation will do what they can to escape, invariably falling out of their hospital beds and harming themselves. There are so many issues raised through this metaphor. Walk through the typical ICU today, and you'll see patients unable to breathe on their own, who will never speak, eat food by mouth, or control their bowels, and yet they're stabbed and poked continually. We need to ask ourselves whether this is treatment or torture. And how can we preserve not just people's lives, but also their dignity? All too often, this debate is framed economically, but instead it should be examined from the perspective of compassion. Congress, along with state legislatures and regulatory agencies, are already weighing in on end-of-life prohibitions. In the House of God, Shem does a beautiful job of describing how the residents outfox the establishment, by pretending to do all sorts of complex procedures, when in truth they're simply cutting back on how often blood is taken and how frequently unnecessary diagnostic studies are performed. Iatrogenic harm is a word from the Greek, meaning brought forth by a healer, and describes how frequently what we as doctors do make patients worse. Even today, once frail and elderly patients are hospitalized, Physicians order and nurses administer sedatives so they won't, in quotes, go to ground. Often as a result, patients experience delirium, a common outcome proven to inflict major harm, not only during the hospital admission itself, but for months afterwards. Listeners may not know that Medicare accounts for $600 billion of healthcare spending each year. Almost no hospital in the United States could survive without these payments. As such, the government could be a powerful force shaping not only coverage, but also care delivery. Let me ask you, Jeremy, in what areas would you like to see the government play a bigger role? An area of health care that is becoming more problematic is mental health. According to the CDC, almost 40,000 people die annually from suicide, more than car accidents, and double the number as a result of homicide. Yet, 
Despite the legislation that requires coverage for mental health services to be equal to other ailments, more and more people have trouble accessing the care needed. In Shem's new book, The Fourth Best Hospital, the fat man offers an important insight through rule two, isolation is deadly, connection heals. Robbie, let's hear his thoughts. Before we leave uh, House of God, I was particularly moved by the suicide of one of your characters, Potts. Uh, I, I believe that you're a psychiatrist. Uh, what are your observations and your thoughts, both about his death in the book and the 400 suicides that happen today amongst physicians more than one a day? Uh, yeah, I just would, would say that I'm in recovery from being a, a psychiatrist. So if we can, <laughs> we can say that. Um, yeah, you know, the thing that the students uh, are most riveted by in the book is when we come to the chapter with the suicide. Uh, and that's because, here's linking it to your question, that's because there is an increased rate of suicide, not just in doctors, which is big now, and that's because of, quote, burnout, which I would much rather call abuse, because uh, burnout makes it feel like we're, we're not up to it. Abuse makes it, I think, more clear. But anyway, there are suicides, in, suicides are up in, uh, in medical schools, too, which I find incredibly moving. You know, these kids who have just worked and worked and worked to get into medical school and then, you know, often on the edge of leaving medical school or first year, you know, they, that's when suicides happen, the transition. It's, and it's because they get isolated. The suicides now... I don't, I don't know that I fully understand them, but what I do know from teaching medical students is that, you know, it's so hard in this society to get into medical school. And there's so much competition and attempt to have these perfect kids that, you know, they get the message. They have to be good at things. You know, it's all about once you're into you know, yourself and making yourself a better self to get into a medical school, all of a sudden you, you risk, uh, you know, quote, isolation, especially in, in, in males, I think. But and as you know, uh, you know, Nick Kristoff, just the other day, isolation now is what is it's as dangerous as, uh, as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day on health, you know, and, 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 as a, one of the things I, I did learn as a psychiatrist is that suicide is a disease of isolation, like others, like depression to a certain extent. And these kids, it's really interesting. I think when you go back over suicides in medical students, isolation is always there, always there, you know, taking themselves away from relationship and con good connections, which is what is health all about. And as I said, it seems to me, I'm, it may not be true, it seems to me they come at, at transitions from like medical school to internship, internship to residency, uh, or even you know from preclinic to clinical teaching. The data does say that when medical students enter medical school, their rate of depression is less than the general public and by the second year, so as you say, one year after the transition, it's now dramatically higher. And that's, I believe, when quite a number of the suicides occur. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. Let me be a broken record. What happens when they go into the clinic? 
Now, what used to happen in the old days was that it was really hard. You know, it was hard. And but you got teaching. You got a lot of time with with your uh, intern or resident. You know, uh, it was a human to human instruction uh, apprenticeship almost. Right? You've been through that. And I guess I'd never thought of this before, but one of the big deals, when they go into the clinic now, they go into a clinic where the interns and residents are in front of those screens up to 80% a shift. I'll tell you one short thing that opened my eyes to this. Uh, I was giving a lecture at a local hospital here to medical students, really good medical students, and they started to complain about how they don't get teaching now because uh, as soon as rounds are over, their interns and residents make a beeline to their screens because they've got to get ahead of the tide, you know, to get all the payment information in there and coding in there. Robbie, I'm impressed by the passion Shem has about the problems generated as a result of the current electronic health record systems. This is definitely an area in which the government could contribute. As an example, the government could force the manufacturers of the commercially available electronic health records to open the application programming interfaces or APIs so that third-party developers could make the tools optimal for the provision of medical care rather than the tools designed predominantly for billing. And similar to what the government did relative to coverage through the Affordable Care Act, it could standardize and simplify the entire hospital billing process. In man's fourth best hospital, the fat man and his crew figure out how to disrupt the facility's computer system so that they can obtain patient data, but make it impossible to enter billing information. A governmental solution would seem less disruptive. I found two of the fat man's rules intriguing as they so succinctly summarized the opportunities. The first rule, number eight, squeeze the money out of the machine, and rule number nine, put the human back in medicine. Here are a few additional thoughts by the author. You know, the book's a novel, and the novel, you know, the novel is, it rides on humor, you know, and it uh, hits the heart and the gut. But I felt an obligation to try to find out what the fat man would say about the problems in Medicare. And he went right to the, even though he's a technocrat, he went right to uh, the computer screens and the for-profit insurance billing through those computer screens. Well, you'll be happy to read, uh, I think it's this month's uh, Mayo Clinic Proceedings, where they took the 12, I'll call it, leading largest technologies, starting with things like Google and Amazon, and they put the electronic, you like to call it the medical, sorry, the medical record, because it's not really a health record, but the EMR, and it came in absolutely last. It got the lowest grade possible uh, with uh, something like 40% of people finding it to be u- utilizable. So I think everything that you wrote in your book has being confirmed by the more re- most recent data. Shem, how has House of God impacted doctors? For, I didn't want to go out doing any publicity for the book. Nothing. I, did, I refused everything. 1978. I didn't think that real writers went out publishing their book with publicity for their book. It's interesting. That's the way I felt. I got on with my life, you know, and people couldn't find me because of this pen name and there was no email or anything like that. They didn't know my address or phone. Two years later, 1980, I got a letter um, through my publisher 
and it opened it up and it said, I'm in a VA hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and if it weren't all night long, and if it weren't for your book, I'd kill myself. And I thought, oh my God, you know, it really hit me. It really hit me. And I said, okay, maybe I can help. Maybe, you know, doctors want to help. Maybe I can be of use to people. If you were to talk to some patients who maybe had not heard of you before, um, who were feeling disenfranchised with American healthcare system right now, and even their interactions with their doctor, rising medical bills and things like that, why would you uh, recommend your book and how would you pitch it to patients? Um, I haven't thought about that. I, I, you know, if I, if I went to talk to a patient group, you know, I would read some of it. I would read, there's a, you came to at the, I think in the last chapter, there's a sketch of, um, uh, how your doctor's visit has become satire with the patient's experience and the doctor's experience described and explained in just a few paragraphs there. I would say, this will help you understand what's going on when your doctor has his or her back to you and why and how it's it's both i think the last line is it's the for-profit insurance industry that is not letting your doctor and you uh have a good relationship and, and take care of you i would say that kind of thing let me ask you a literary question i see house of god as sort of a combination of parody and satire yeah and I read um, uh, The Fourth House uh, as being much more of an allegory. Uh-huh. Do you see it the same way? Is that how you wrote it? Wow, that's the best question I've ever had on, on Man's Fourth. <laughs> um, I put it this way. I, I never thought of it like that, of course, as the, as, a, as the writer. I just am in it, right? I'm just trying to be in it and let it lead me in, in a certain way once I get the, the core of it. And um, I, uh, I mean, but, but the thing that I realized inexorably, of course, is that I did go through the house of God, you know, and it's written very close to the bone. Um, the uh, man's fourth best hospital, alas, I had to write uh, from my imagination because it didn't happen. This didn't happen to me. So that's an interesting way of looking at it. I'm glad you brought that up. I think um, the, other diff the other big difference is that, is in narration, the narrator is looking back, you know, several years after the event in, the events in Man's Fourth Best Hospital, right? He's older and he's looking back so in some sense, I was very aware of writing from an, from an, an older doctor's view. You know what I mean? I guess when you are writing about explicitly about a healthcare system that's so much larger than just a personal journey, it, I suppose it can take on allegory or parable terms. You know what I mean? So this season of Fixing Healthcare with Jeremy Kuhn and myself is focusing a lot on what the government should do. And what do you see based upon your experience both at NYU and in writing the current book, the role the government should play 
in addressing the problems, whether it's the electronic health record, whether it's the pharmaceutical industry, whether it's the health plan insurance industry, where do you see the role of government stepping in to help solve the problems? Well, yeah, as you know, in the middle of the book, the fat man gives a lecture on the six rackets of American healthcare and what to do about it, right? Um, yeah, I'll just give you my, I've really, really tried to understand this. Here's, here's what I understand and here's what I think I come, where I come down. Um, electronic medical record, 2008, Obama did a, wanted to do a good thing. He wanted to have something that could really help, you know, fix, you know, get data and how to, uh, communicate information, you know, across various different parts of the, of the system. Right. And that was a good idea. And, and, but then somehow finally, or somehow at the start, and somebody should investigate this. No one's written about this. This is a great thing to think about. Somehow private insurance got into that model and all of a sudden they linked a code of data with cash, right? They came in and that's what it then became all about. And so what I think really would work, and I haven't seen this said in this sort of completeness, is that we will have within five years some kind of a more a public healthcare system. There's no doubt about it, especially since more and more women are coming into politics, I think. We will have it, okay? So how is it gonna work given the private insurance industry? You know, people, some of the candidates are saying, we gotta get rid of private insurance. No, we don't, we don't. What we have to get rid of is the presence of private insurance billing in the public system. What are your thoughts on the intersection of technology and the physician culture? Culture is in the environment, you know, react, response to the environment. And what's the one thing that doctors are responding to? It, it really is, as you know, it really is the, the time they have to spend in front of screens that they can uh, uh, do in front of patients. Now, what is the effect on the doctor culture? Um, well, you know, there are all these statistics on, quote, burnout. Uh, individually, doctors are, I mean, I, I think this, well, we know that there are a lot of uh, unhappy and impaired doctors uh, who actually some are, you know, the suicide rate, rates are, are up as well. And um, there are people who don't want to work in this system the system comes down on them a lot worse than the system in, um, in the house of God. And so, you know, what I see and what I hear is almost all of the, uh, all of the house staff and, and young doctors and doctors are trying to figure out how to stay alive, but more important, how their culture can stay alive for being with patients. And that's, that's my broken record. Every time I start to think of those things, I'm led back to, right? How, you know, trying to figure out, a doctor trying to figure out how to, you know, you know turn to face a patient while still typing, or, you know, how to get home on time. Or uh, I'll give you a little example. Somebody said to me about Bellevue, 
you know, which is a 500-bed public hospital, you know, attached to NYU, 900 people, nobody's ever refused. And this is a uh, this this was a long-term uh, doctor at Bellevue. You know, the people who work there love it. They love doing it. And I said to him, "How do you stand this?" You know, and he said, "Well, because it's really hard, you know, in terms of the work and and the, and the severity of disease and the hopelessness and all of that stuff." And he said, well, every night when I go home, I try to think of one good thing that I've done and I can almost to take care of a patient. And I almost always can think of that. He said, that's the way it used to be. But now I find myself against my better judgment. I'm walking home and I'm thinking, can I think of one good thing I did for the care of my computer? You know, and it sucks. I love it, Shem. I, you know, I love it because we know that from the standpoint of, of creating physician unhappiness, dissatisfaction, call it burnout, that lack of purpose is a major component to that. And I think that that's what you're describing, that someone who is a data entry clerk the entire day goes home at night feeling like they have not achieved an important purpose for which they trained for 10 years of their life. Your most recent book ends with optimism and a prescription for the future. It includes rule number three, connection comes first. And rule number six, it's what we do together. Let me ask you to expand on this theme. Roy Bosch is, has a lot of you in him, and Fats has probably a little bit of you in him. And I'm guessing that Barry uh, is your current wife and to whom you've been married for a while. Um, can you talk about the importance of relationships oh. for, for physicians in their training, physicians in their practice, um, any, any which ways you want to opine on the subject? I went back and looked in the house of God for evidence of how important connection was. You know, it's implicit all the way through and how disconnections are bad. But there are these wonderful... Um, sayings actually from the fat man he says you know be with the patient you know uh that that's his big thing he says something like these patients you know something like these patients know that i'm with with them in this uh, you know through all of their uh all of their uh illness or something like that and roy actually says in the book uh what these patients uh wanted was what anyone wants the hand in their hand, the the sense that their uh, doctor could care. So there there are there are these glimmers of being with the patient. He, Fat says I make them feel like they're part of some grand funny scheme, you know, and not alone with their diseases. Those are quotes that I happen to come to. You know, I found these later, and I said, geez, that's pretty good. You you sort of were on the right track. Well, when it came to man's fourth best hospital to answer your first questions. Yes, Roy is, Roy is very much like me. I mean, I think he was a little more innocent than I was when he, I went into the hospital in the house of God. Uh, Barry uh, is my wife now and, uh, and uh, mother of our child. And uh, she, and so when I got to write man's fourth, you know, as a writer, you write what you love, you know, I mean, you, what, you're sitting there, you want to write this. I'm dying to write this. You know what I mean? That's what, I'm, I was on fire writing this. Oh, Janet can be here again. And our daughter, I can write about our daughter when she was five. 
I hope you enjoyed that with her, uh, you know, the, the, the daughter. I mean, she sort of... I loved her and her buddy and all of her sayings. And she sounded uh, like a really smart individual. I'm sure she's been very successful in life. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, but um, yeah, and Janet and, and I with her teamed up to write a couple of things. One was we did uh, gender dialogues all over the world, 20,000 people, and we wrote a book about gender relations called We Have to Talk, Healing Dialogues Between Women and Men. And the theory that's in Man's Fourth about how a shift from a focus on self as a measure of health, of mental health, to uh, looking at the quality of the relationships or connections as a, as a, you know, I'm sure you picked that up in the book. And uh, the idea of bringing uh, uh, Barry in to join, to try to help this process with the, the fat man and the guys. And actually I was the fat man too, I must say, uh, in the house of God. And I am in this. Um, this was wonderful for me to do, and I think I think it works. All this about connection comes first, and uh, it's not just what you say or do f first. It's what you say or do next, and trying to look at the we, all of that. Um, I think that really, it, I, I didn't just I, di I, I didn't just put it in. I think it's organic to the whole because, uh, to spoil it for readers, you know, Barry winds up being part of the team of the, of the fat man. And of course, as you know, one of the things in looking in, in doing this new book is that I realized as a young man writing man's uh, house of God, face it, the, the fat man was a ideal. There was never anything wrong with him except being fat. Right. And he was, he was just, there were no flaws. And I thought to myself, he's not perfect. He has flaws. I mean, at one point, as you know, Hyper Hooper says, you're fat, you're fat. Well, nobody had even mentioned fat in the house of God. So that um, the, the underpinning of the journey toward how to be a doctor and how to be a doctor in a community and in a clinic and in a larger structure in this book takes me right to the edge of my experience and possibility as a human being in trying to be in good relationship with others and in and also not to make this too arrogant or fancy to how to um, respect a spiritual um, endeavor a spiritual learning whatever that means which is means beyond self I think that I'm trying to do this because People grow, and these all everybody in this book has grown since the last, uh, don't you think? Absolutely. I think the conclusion is one of resolution, and maybe you should tell the listeners a little bit, whatever you want to do without ruining the endings of the book, about how you see the future un unrolling, uh, how you see the time frame evolving, uh, either based upon your own views or based upon those of the characters. Yeah, well, I won't reveal what happens in the in the book, but I'm very glad you asked that because, you know, for better or worse, um, I I I am a person who lives with hope. I'm, I mean, you know, everybody's everybody suffered, right? 
big suffering, little suffering, but it's, it's how you walk through it, you know, that's important. And we doctors, that's our job to help people through it. And in our own lives, you know, getting back to suicide, um, if you are going through a tough time and you withdraw, the alarm bell should go off. Especially men, very often we think oh, we can take care of it of ourselves, but you have to move in exact in the exact opposite direction and ask for help, like alcoholics and AA do, the successful ones. But you know what I see happening, and maybe this book will—I I would hope some politician or other would talk to me about it because I think this is a fairly sensible way to try. And I'm not I'm not sure it'll work uh, to talk about. Um, I uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I grew up with in the 60s. We stopped the Vietnam War when we got together and, and spoke out and we put the civil rights laws on the books. And right now, we are really needed, doctors especially, to get together and try to do something. Um, I haven't mentioned the two big things that affect our work and disease. One is climate change. You know, huge subject, can't talk about it now. But as I think I said on the first page, the climate is in our rooms, in our patients' rooms, as causal, causal right? Um, so uh, that's one. And the other thing is, you know, I feel a real obligation, as you do too, going with Kaiser and everything, which is a great system. I can't believe it. I know a lot of people who it. Chuck was in the Kaiser system until he retired from the house of God. He loved it. You know, uh, the guy, the real guy from Chuck. But, you know, I, I think that we're going to do better. I think that we're going to do better as a society on taking care of our, our people, the, the, the poor and the, the, the homeless, the people of color. And I even think this is very strange. I think like Martin Luther King, you know, the, the arc of justice bends, you know, on to, toward hope, basically what he said. I would add to that just one simple thing that I put out there all the time to like surgeons. Don't say I to the patient, say we, what are we? Well, let's talk about what we're going to do. And if you put a we out between a doctor and patient, you concretize the fact that there's a relationship here. And what's the, per what's the reason surgeons get sued most? It's if the patient says there was no relationship with them. So the we, I didn't get to that much, but the we is absolutely useful. No question about it. And the patient has to be part of the healing process, whether it's going to be the breathing after the anesthesia, whether it's going to be the walking around, the proper nutrition and eating, the right mental mindset. I think it's really expanding that. And uh, that's why I see your books coming together. It's really, in my mind, it's not a sequel. It's really two, two parts of the same bookshelf because the, the, the two themes of the medical culture and the systemic problem, to me, come together in a way that if we can form this union that you described so well, physicians and physicians, physicians and nurses, physicians and patients, the entire ecosystem, I believe that we can do a far better job with higher satisfaction, greater purpose, and lower cost. So thank you for writing both of them. From your lips, as they say, to God's ears. I think that's brilliant. Thank you, Shem, and thank you for taking the time with us. Thank you so much. Before we go, 
Let's take a few minutes to hear some of the many suggestions we've received from listeners who weighed in on the question, how can the U.S. government best improve healthcare? Don't forget, there's still time for you to add your ideas at robertperlmd.com. In episode two of this season, we read comments from listeners who liked their private insurance and opposed what they saw as step towards socialized medicine. This time, we read ideas from listeners who feel the private sector and its incumbents have too much power and wield far too much influence. Mary Lou Beredu Wittenborn, RN, recommends taking insurance companies, lobbyists, and PACs out of the legislation process and healthcare delivery. Lisa L. White suggests decreasing the power the insurance lobby wields over healthcare. She says it should have never been a profit center. Jack Emanuel Corvo, MD, recommends our nation improve care delivery by value based payment, achieve universal health care via a public option. Jeffrey D. Deeden favors allowing everyone to buy into Medicare if they do not have health care or like the health care they're provided by their employer. Robbie, what is your take? I concur with our listeners that special interests, including drug manufacturers, insurance companies, and hospitals, have too much influence when it comes to legislation. The current rules were often passed following major campaign contributions, and they are not designed to help patients get better medical care at a more affordable price. I worry that unless we can flatten the rate of current inflation, that no approach, whether private or through the government, will prove successful. And I'm doubtful that either the current healthcare incumbents or the elected members of Congress will have the courage required to make the difficult choices needed. That's why I remain convinced that disruption is inevitable, whether from large self-insured businesses or from offshore. Once again, thanks to Mary Lou Barreto Wittenborn, Lisa L. White, Jacques Emmanuel Corvo, Jeffrey Deeden, and everyone who has participated in the Fixing Healthcare survey on robertperlmd.com. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on iTunes or other podcast software. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Together, we can make American healthcare once again the best in the world. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.